0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at CandlewoodArtsFestival.org.
1: Biden immigration enforcement priorities are challenged at the U.S. Supreme Court. The question is whether uh, a congressional law that says shall provides a level of discretion. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Concerns over a possible virus triple-demic this winter.
2: I think we're already there. What we're seeing is a convergence of multiple viruses that are descending upon our healthcare system.
1: The challenges increase for Sandag's sweeping transportation plan. And finally, how to get good grades in clown school. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
3: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
1: How much discretion can a president use when enforcing a law from Congress? That question is before the U.S. Supreme Court today in regard to U.S. immigration law. It's been a long-debated question, and this time it revolves around the guidelines the Biden administration has given Immigration and Customs Enforcement on Immigrant Detention and Deportation. The administration says it's essential to focus deportation efforts against unauthorized immigrants who commit crimes— The state's attorneys from Louisiana and Texas say such an interpretation is a drastic change in immigration law, something only Congress has the power to make. Joining me is Dan Eaton, constitutional law expert and partner at the San Diego firm of Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon and Vitek. And Dan, welcome back to the show.
4: Sure. Good to be with you, Maureen.
1: Now presidents often draw up different policy enforcement priorities based on congressional law why is this question being considered by the justices now
4: well uh, as you point out this is this issue comes up in a variety of different areas most recently people will recall it came up in connection with the student loan policy that president biden wanted to issue the question is whether uh, a congressional law that says shall provides a level of discretion you start with the idea that Homeland Security couldn't possibly take into custody and enforce the Immigration and Nationality Act against all 11 million undocumented immigrants who are here. So the question is how broad that discretion, notwithstanding Congress's mandate that the HHS Secretary shall do certain things, extends. That's why the justices are taking it up, because they want to see how far this can go. The Secretary of Homeland Security is limiting the enforcement of immigration laws to certain categories of undocumented immigrants.
1: You know, there's also a humanitarian aspect to this uh, for people who've established lives in this country. So it isn't just about the number of immigration enforcement agents and the number of undocumented people in the United States. So is the administration arguing that humanitarian aspect of the issue before the
4: court? Well, in a broad sense, they are in the sense that they are saying that, look, we are going to take priority over uh, in enforcing the law on three different categories of undocumented immigrants. And those three categories are suspected terrorists and spies, those who have committed certain crimes and those who have been stopped at the border uh, during unlawful entry or, or recently have been stopped after sometime in November of last year. So they're saying that, yes, in a sense, that we are not going to necessarily enforce the law. We're not going to prioritize the law with respect to children, which raises the humanitarian concern that you raise. This is all part of prosecutorial discretion that across five administrations, including the George W. Bush administration, administrations have exercised in connection with the enforcement of immigration law.
1: How does, though, the Biden immigration policy differ from the Trump administration?
4: Well, the Trump administration essentially said, we are going to enforce the law as it's written, which says that we shall take into uh, custody any immigrant who has committed certain crimes when the immigrant is released from criminal custody in the in the state. Uh, their view was that we're going to take into custody as immigration authorities, all of these folks, and then, of course, arrange for their eventual removal from this country. What the new administration under Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary, uh, said is that, no, we're going to prioritize these three certain kinds of undocumented immigrants so that we can use our resources effectively both to protect the borders and to protect national security.
1: The law, the congressional law, I believe, states that entering this country illegally is a crime in and of itself. Now, Louisiana and Texas claim that the Biden administration cannot tell immigration agents that they can't enforce the law
4: as written by Congress. Is that a strong argument? Well, it's a strong argument in the sense that that is what the law says. But the question is whether that includes a degree of discretion with the Homeland Security, the secretary who couldn't possibly enforce law against all 11 million Uh, undocumented immigrants. And that raises a fundamental question. And one of the questions the justices are considering is whether Texas and Louisiana even have standing or the right to bring this lawsuit, given that this is immigration policy and they aren't suffering the kind of direct harm that normally you have to have to go into federal court. And what they're saying is, yeah, we sort of do suffer direct harm because we're having to detain these people in state prisons for a longer period of time. And there are also education and welfare implications to uh, having them uh, in our states. That is an important question right there as to whether Texas and Louisiana can even bring this challenge to immigration policy.
1: Does this case, Dan, have implications for the DACA program, which of course delays deportation for young adults who were brought into this country as children?
4: It does in the sense that the same basic administrative law, the Administrative Procedures Act, is implicated in that as well. And it gets to the basic question that we keep seeing again and again in cases we've discussed before, Maureen, which is how far administration discretion goes in exercising congressional laws that appear to have mandates. The DACA program abates the enforcement of immigration law with respect to uh, childhood arrivals and so on. And that, of course, itself is is the subject of ongoing illegal action. You are going to keep seeing this again and again. And one of the things that the administration is claiming is that we can't have states going into court suing the federal government every time there's a dispute on federal policy. Uh, At some point, the administration has to have discretion in the way it enforces broad congressional mandates.
1: Is there any indication on how the conservative majority
4: of the Supreme Court may rule in this case? The conservative majority may very well decide that uh, on one of these, one or all of these questions, that this policy that the administration has put in place can't stand. On the other hand, there is some argument from a procedural standpoint that maybe Texas and Louisiana shouldn't have the standing to bring this lawsuit in the first place.
1: I've been speaking with Dan Eaton, a constitutional law expert partner at the San Diego firm of Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon, and Vitek. Dan, as always, thank you so much. Thank
5: you, Maureen. Concerns have been long growing that a triple demic of COVID, RSV, and flu cases could have a major impact on health systems around the nation. While COVID cases remain at a stable level, hospitals are now contending with surges in both flu and RSV cases, presenting a major strain on local health resources. Joining me now on what this could mean going forward is Dr. Seema Shah, the Medical Director of the County's Epidemiology and Immunization Services Branch. And Dr. Shah, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
5: First of all, I want to hear your thoughts on these triple-demic fears. Is that an accurate way to describe the situation we see now, or are we not there yet?
2: No, I, I think we're already there. You know, a, What we're seeing is a convergence of multiple viruses that are descending upon our healthcare system, and that includes flu, RSV, and, and of course, COVID. Uh, so, so we are absolutely already starting to see the effects of that.
5: How well prepared do you think county medical systems would be to handle a simultaneous surge in all three of these illnesses?
2: I think that's a great question for the healthcare systems. But you know, again, you know, having three viruses impact at the same time is 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 going to have a a significant strain on resources in an already strained situation. So, absolutely a concern and. You know, of, of course, the public has to be doing its part to, to help with this this impact on our healthcare system.
5: COVID numbers are trending up slightly. Uh, do you expect any sort of a major uptick after the holidays?
2: You know, that's always a concern. We've seen that the last two years. And, you know, we're starting to see that in our COVID wastewater. You know, our wastewater has tripled in the last, uh, you know, a, a few weeks. We're also starting to see hospitalizations. They've doubled in the last 30 days. So we're already part of an uptick. The question is just how significant will it be? You know, in isolation, COVID would, you know, this sort of uptick could be manageable. But then if you add on multiple other viruses like RSV and flu, that that will continue to have an even greater impact as as people get hospitalized, people get sicker. Uh, So certainly, you know, we're already starting to see that with COVID. We just don't know how significant that surge is going to be.
5: There are some hopes that this year's winter COVID surge will be milder than years past. What are your thoughts on that?
2: I think that that's a possibility. You know, we've seen that happen in Europe where there were slight surges and then a decrease in, in cases and hospitalizations. But of course, you know, we're continuing to see, you know, hundreds of people die in the United States um, from COVID every every day. So I, I think that it's it's, you know, it's not a virus that's gone. It is continuing to... Hospitalized and and have deaths in 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 San Diego County alone. So I think that we we need to be very cautious about you know thinking that this will just be a minor minor uptick.
5: And what's the latest trend on RSV locally? Are we seeing any hospitalizations?
2: So a lot of our, hosp- our RSV data is uh, you know through Grady Children's Hospital, uh, and of course they're seeing a significant rise in. Our increase in the number of RSV uh, cases and hospitalizations. You know there is some evidence, you know, throughout the United States, especially on the East Coast, that some of that is starting to plateau, meaning the RSV cases are starting to plateau. Our wastewater here shows that there may be a, a plateauing of that as well. But again, you know, with the recent holiday, uh, that that dynamic certainly might change, and so we'll have to see what happens in the next few weeks.
5: And what about the flu? Why are we seeing so many cases this early in the season
2: it, It's not entirely clear. You know we saw this happen in the southern hemisphere where they actually had a really early flu season, and our flu season is running six weeks early and Of course, you know we are uh, seeing a significant uh, you know increase in the number of cases and there are is some worrisome data that there's already an increase in hospitalizations throughout the United states so Again, you know, it's unclear why so early, but we are starting to see uh, quite a bit and and the the curve is quite steep. And hospitals are admitting a
5: lot of people with flu-like illness. Uh, Is the emergency room the best place for someone with the
2: flu to go? Great question. And again, you know, I think that consulting with your healthcare provider is going to be critical, but you know, we don't want everyone to go to the emergency department. Of course, if you're experiencing severe symptoms like shortness of breath, or you're, you know, there's, if you're thinking of a young child who's struggling to breathe and having high fevers that won't go down or, you know, dehydrated, those would be the kinds of cases that you would want to go to the ER for. But for the vast majority should be able to consult with your healthcare provider, you know, thinking about treatments and what other possibilities, especially if you have flu or COVID.
5: And California is set to end its COVID emergency in February of next year. Is the plan still to end the county's COVID emergency once the state does? And if so, what sort of change could delay that move?
2: As far as the county is concerned, you know, we mirror a lot of what is being done, you know, by our, our, our state leadership. So what California Department of Public Health, you know, dictates. And so we'll, we'll have to see when we get to February. But again, it doesn't change how we manage the disease in terms of reporting in terms of how we're, 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 you know, monitoring the impact on the healthcare systems. So, yes, there is that piece. But, you know, a lot of the transition has already occurred, and we're continuing to manage these surges as they come.
5: And at this point, do you think COVID is at a manageable level within the community?
2: Yeah. And I mentioned this earlier, you know, I think that, you um, in isolation, at the at the hospitalization numbers and at the uh, the number of cases that we're seeing, that may be the case, but um, the problem is is we're in the middle of winter and we have a significant impact of multiple respiratory viruses. So it's not just COVID; it's COVID, flu, RSV, and even other simple viruses like the more common ones like rhinovirus that we see, um, as in the common cold. So. Uh again I you know manageable that that is a great question for the healthcare systems but from the standpoint of, of what we're seeing it's it, it is currently all three are creating a significant impact and strain on our on our systems.
5: I've been speaking with Dr. Seema Shah, the medical director of the county's epidemiology and immunization services branch. Dr. Shah, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
2: No problem.
1: A new lineup of county leaders at the San Diego Association of Governments, or SANDAG, may make a new vision for San Diego transit harder to achieve. The midterm elections have put more Republicans on the board, many of whom are critical of the proposed transportation overhaul and most especially the per-mile driver's fees that would fund it the effort to change car-centric San Diego into a city with easy access public transit was always a massive and hugely expensive proposal. Now, it may face even more obstacles, including the possible departure of the plan's mastermind, SANDAG Executive Director Hassan Ikrata. Joining me is Joshua Emerson-Smith, Senior Environment Reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Joshua, welcome.
6: Pleasure to be here, as always.
1: Now, give us an idea, if you would, of the extent of SANDAG's rail extension proposal. How would it change San Diego's transportation landscape?
6: It's pretty ambitious. We're talking about 200 miles of rail, underground tunnels, massive train stations, a connection to the airport, as well as finishing off some unfinished business like moving the tracks up the crumbling Del Mar Bluffs.
1: And the price tag on it?
6: Over $160 billion. So very ambitious.
1: And the underlying reason for this proposal is to cut down driving and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Is that it? Or are there other reasons?
6: Well, that's part of it. I mean, a major aspect of this is to prevent the type of gridlock traffic that we saw before the pandemic started and which has eased somewhat but experts say, could come back with a vengeance in coming months and years. So the idea is if we build these rail lines, then people will be able to get to work in other locations without having to sit during those rush hour commutes.
1: One of the central funding structures for this massive plan is a per-mile fee for drivers, which you report is already pretty unpopular even on the current SANDAG board. Why do the newly elected board members add an extra challenge?
6: Well, we're probably going to see some more conservative board members on the uh, SANDAG governing board. And they have said they're very hostile to the idea of raising taxes to fund public transit, especially when it comes to these per mile fees on drivers. And Sandag still needs to get voter approval to raise taxes to pay for its blueprint. And when these new elected officials get on the Sandag board and then go back to their constituents, they're going to be bringing a message hey, either support this or vote it down.
1: And so the executive director, Hassani Karate, is looking at all of this, this pushback on the plan. And he's saying now he may leave Sandag?
6: That's what he told me. He said he felt very uncomfortable with the way that the board has been operating. Lots of partisan grandstanding, calls for Accra to resign. And he said that he'd really like to see the board embrace a common vision and start being more collaborative if he's going to stick around for much longer.
1: Let's talk more about the per mile fee for drivers. Now, isn't the state, the state of California going to start imposing such a fee to pay for road repair?
6: Yeah, that's probably what's going to happen here. They have a pilot program going, and they're one of many pilot programs happening in states across the country, including a couple of programs that are already in development in Oregon, Utah, and most recently Virginia. So it looks like this is the wave of the future. This is how we pay for road maintenance in an era that increasingly has people driving in electric cars.
1: Because gas taxes used to pay for that road infrastructure, right?
6: Yeah, and they still do, right? Like, that's why we raised the gas tax a few years ago, because we're just pulling in less money from those fuel taxes. So they still pay for that and they will continue to do that. But at some point, California and the rest of the country is hoping we can switch over to all electric cars and then we'll need some way to pay for this.
1: So if the state is going to have a driving fee, couldn't the county just add on to the state's fee?
6: And that's Sandag's plan. But uh, it's not that popular. And people don't like the idea of it. I mean, people... Often don't like the idea of any new tax, right? And so it seems that uh, there's a little bit of frustration with how far out ahead of this issue the Sandags uh, leadership has gotten. So it may be an issue that's more political than practical at this point.
1: Now, some advocates are saying, though, that making it more expensive to drive is the only way to get people to change to public transportation. Is there some truth to that?
6: That's what the experts have been saying, and not just recently for decades, really. If you talk to transportation experts, they will tell you that the way to tamp down on rush hour gridlock is to have fluctuating fees so that you pay more during those peak travel times to discourage people from taking trips in the morning and then in the afternoon. So you do that, and then you have the public transportation system as an alternative, and that's generally thought to be the best practice for trying to avoid the kind of gridlock traffic that really has engulfed many major metropolitan areas like Los Angeles, Dallas, other areas that have spent decades widening freeways. SandAG has made the pitch hey let 's not be like that let 's try these these best practices that transportation advocates have been pushing, experts and advocates have been pushing, and see if we can avoid that, but so far it 's proved pretty politically fraught
1: and if we don 't rely more on public transportation, what are the projections for san diego 's freeway congestion?
6: Well, I mean your guess is as good as mine at this point, right? <laughs> Who would have thought we would have had a pandemic and that driving would have declined as much as it has. And now we have this remote work revolution, right? And so we don't really know what the future holds, but we do know if driving continues and we continue to build new apartment buildings like the state has called for and build more density into our urban neighborhoods and we don't do anything, experts have said gridlock traffic will be back with a vengeance.
1: I've been speaking with Joshua Emerson-Smith, Senior Environment Reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Joshua, thank you.
5: Wonderful to be here. A new study from the Rady School of Management finds when it comes to politics, Americans would rather hurt the cause they believe in than support the one they don't. So why is that? Here to talk about it is Ariel Friedman, joint author of the study and PhD candidate in behavioral marketing at the Rady School of Management. Ariel, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so for this study, you looked at three contentious issues gun rights, reproductive rights, and funding for political parties. What
7: did you find there? Yeah, so we found that consistently across those three different causes, people would rather harm their own side. Than help the opposing side. And we found it across those three causes and across both su- people on both sides of each cause. So Democrats and Republicans, pro-life, pro-choice, they both behaved similarly. They would both rather subtract funding and hurt their side than add any kind of even a small amount of funding to the opposing side.
5: Interesting and sad. Um, what reasons do people offer in terms of why they're willing to harm their own party and, and self-interest even uh, to avoid support of their opposing party?
7: Yeah, so that's a very fascinating question and one that kind of motivated a lot of this research. We believe that one of the drivers of people's decision-making in, this, in these kinds of contexts is their identity and how their choices impact their identity. And kind of to put it in a nutshell, we find that it's, it's more harmful to one's identity to help the other side than to harm their own side.
5: Hmm. I mean, aside from political parties, did your findings vary at all among demographics?
7: Interestingly, we, we looked at that and we didn't find changes across various demographics. We also looked um, at other countries as well. So we looked at the UK, for example, and found a similar pattern of results there as well.
5: Hmm. And so, you know, I mean, it sounds like compromise and cooperation are difficult for Americans these days. Um, what are the psychological barriers to that?
7: So that, that's, a, that's a great question. And, and we think that this work kind of contributes to those psychological barriers. Um, people, you know, just don't seem to want to make any concessions to an opposing side. And that really harms uh, cooperation and, and you, you can imagine that this might have big implications for, uh, you know, in, in the political sphere, for example.
5: And tell me more about uh, the study that you did. How did you uh,
7: survey people? So, what we did is in an experiment, we asked participants or we told participants that we'd be making two donations, one to each side of the cause. So, for example, a donation to Republicans and a donation to Democrats. And we simply asked people you have a choice to alter these donation amounts. Would you rather add a dollar to the opposing side or subtract a dollar from your side? And we found that about 70% of participants when they were asked this question preferred to subtract a dollar from their side rather than add a dollar to the opposing side. What did you find is key to bringing Americans together? One important thing that we found can help to bring people together is to establish kind of norms of helping the other side. So when, if people knew, for example, that a lot of others in their group, when faced with this decision, actually chose to help the other side, then people kind of copied that. When, when the norm was established to kind of cooperate and, and, you know, kind of help the other side, people followed that norm. And, and we think that, you know, even in high-stakes situations, like in politics, having perhaps, say, prominent politicians cooperating and and kind of coming together and and perhaps seeding gains to the other side in the spirit of cooperation that can help others kind of follow that example.
5: And when it comes to uh, political ideologies, I I know you've said you want to expand your research to study people in other countries and cultures. Um, Can you talk about why that's important?
7: The the US is, um, there are many accounts that suggest that kind of Af- polarization in the U.S. is, is, is at kind of a, an all-time high. And so we thought it could be interesting to look at other countries where um, polarization is, is not as stark, for example, and see whether we find a the similar pattern there or if this is kind of, you know, unique to perhaps U.S. or Western countries.
5: What's the consequence, you think, of the U.S. being so divided?
7: But I think that the divisiveness that we have in the U.S. certainly makes it very difficult for sides to come together um, and, and to, con- to cede any gains to the other side.
5: And in your study, you found some inconsistencies with prior theories on how people make decisions in group settings. What did you find?
7: Yeah. So, you know, the, there are kind of two prominent prior theories on, on how people make decisions in such settings. One of them is is kind of related to in-group love and shows that people are kind of driven by in-group love rather than out-group hate when making decisions. And our findings seem to be inconsistent with that. I mean, if if you're really driven by in-group love, why would you hurt your own side when when you have the opportunity not to? Um, Another kind of prominent theory is kind of related to in-group favoritism, and it suggests that people want to create the most favorable relative comparison between their group and the other group. Um, And our findings are, again, inconsistent with that theory, since harming your own side actually creates a worse relative comparison between your group and the other group. Um, And so, you know, instead, we offer a theory that's related to identity and how identity plays a role in these decisions and can trump, you know, uh, these, these other considerations.
5: You can find this study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, I've been speaking with Ariel Friedman, joint author and a PhD candidate in behavioral marketing at the Rady School of Management. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us.
7: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: The total destruction of a wildfire can be hard to fathom unless you're among those who have to sift through what remains. Jefferson Public Radio's Roman Butalia visited the site of this summer's McKinney Fire in Northern California, where a team of trained dogs and archaeologists helped recover urns with cremated remains that was scattered in the fire. Okay. Turn. Piper, leave that.
0: Lynn Anglebird is guiding her dog, Piper, around the site of a home that burned down during the McKinney Fire this year, which devastated the small Klamath River community near the Oregon-California border. Today, she's at Valerie Linfoot's home, where a specially trained team of dogs and archaeologists are working together to find Linfoot's mother and grandmother. Their cremated remains were left behind when Linfoot had to evacuate. My husband was home, I wasn't home, so he had about 10 minutes. And so there was very little, but he was able to grab our pets, our safe, and port and papers. And um, he was able to get a few mementos that were near the safe.
2: And that was about it.
0: Lynn Foots family members' urns were kept in her walk-in closet, now just a faint outline of where it used to be. My
2: best guess would be about a third of the way in against this wall, but may have fell forward. So it's under this piece of
0: metal. Engelbert and her team are part of the Alta Heritage Foundation. She says they started in 2017 when a survivor of the Tubbs fire in Santa Rosa reached out to an archaeologist looking for help finding his parents' cremated remains in the rubble. The archaeologist connected them with Engelbert, who does work finding human remains with the Institute for Canine Forensics.
5: One weekend on Saturday, I was working with the sheriff's office up there helping to look for victims with Piper. And they were finished with us that day, so I called this guy and I said, I can be at your house in tomorrow morning. Piper found the cremains in about two minutes and I recovered them using a tuna fish can into Ziploc bags.
0: Since then Engelbert says they've been out to over three hundred homes. The recovery process happens in two steps, combining archaeology and canine forensics. Once the handlers take their dogs through the site to locate the general area of the remains, the archaeologists step in with shovels and dust pans to sift through the debris looking for the ashes. Chelsea Rose is one of the archaeologists on this trip. She rubs a small piece of drywall in her hands, and it dissolves into a very fine powder.
1: In addition to kind of this like salmon color that we see, there's um, it's a lot grittier than like some of the other materials we're seeing, like drywall and stuff like that.
0: After lifting some metal sheets and imagining where the ashes could have landed in the firestorm, the team gets some good luck.
4: Oh yeah, that That's might be it. That's about
0: where they... That's one of them, I think.
1: Yeah, and here's the other one. Oh, yep. Oh my yep. god. Oh yep. my god.
8: <laughs> there they are.
0: The recovery process can be very emotional. Valerie Linfoot gets down close to the two small salmon-colored piles.
8: <gasps> I miss my mom
0: so much. Aww. I just couldn't bury her. <laughs> I her with me. So then I felt really sad because I was the one that had the ashes, right? You know, I have two brothers and a sister. All the work that Engelbert and the others do is on their own dime. Engelbert says the cost of hotels, gas, and all the safety gear they need adds up. She says they've been working for five years trying to find a government agency that can support them.
5: You know, we have massive pictures that we roll out on a desktop. And they look at that and they go, oh, that's heartrending." How sad. We'll see what we can do. And then that's
1: the last you hear from it.
0: The archaeologists are able to identify who's who based on what's left of their urns and the age of the remains. They start packing up the ashes into Ziploc bags.
5: Oh, Grandma Vera. I'm so sorry you've had to have this huge journey. But you were an adventurer, and you would really
1: understand this and appreciate the efforts of all these people. <laughs>
0: The crew takes a short break before heading right next door to another recovery that day. The dogs are already excited for their next job. night
1: when I was walking up to get the truck, I could hear one of them whining. That's normal, right? That they yeah, let drive. Right. Coach, coach, I can
0: do this. Put me Put in. Me in. <laughs> yeah. Engelbert says it can be devastating for families to imagine their loved one's remains getting sent to a toxic waste dump with the rest of the rubble. Even if they're ultimately unsuccessful, she says, this process helps families get some form of closure knowing they tried.
1: That was Roman Butalia for the California Report.
0: Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today.
5: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Big shoes and a big red nose are characteristics of a classic clown, but the art of clowning isn't what it used to be. Students of all ages are now pursuing a form of comedy that left the circus behind. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez takes us to clown school.
9: I'm Ella the
2: Clown. That's my movement. And you're always going to repeat that movement.
10: On a Saturday afternoon in a Mission Bay park, class is in session and Ella the Clown is the teacher, proudly wearing her colorful makeup and big red nose.
8: This is the world's smallest mask. That's very true. But it's not a mask because it's hiding anything. It's a mask because it's helping you reveal inner truths. It's the most excited you've ever been!
10: Behind the big red nose, Ella, is really Danielle Levsky, a certified clown, writer, producer, and educator. She teaches children how to use their imaginations through games, triggering exaggerated emotions, truthful emotions that are also entertaining, taking the audience on quite a ride.
8: It is quite like a volcano. It starts building up, it starts rumbling, and then it erupts. And now it's very exciting, it's the big grand moment for everyone, and then it slowly goes back down. And there's some joy to be found there, too. Welcome to
1: the Sassy
10: Salon! Ella is just one of Danielle's clown characters. So this is Baba Yana, the Soviet Jewish grandma clown. She's also
1: based on the women in my family. All of their neuroses and anxieties and
0: love and care, all wrapped up into one chaotic clown.
10: Once a month, the Jewish grandmother clown is MC of the Thursday night open mic show at Diversionary Theater. Levsky also leads a weekly class at the theater, teaching adults how to clown.
8: And feel free to play with the volume, the intonation, the movement.
10: Brittany Wood is one of her students. I'm
8: an epidemiologist, so I work for the county and I do like more data research for. Uh, opioid overdose and substance use and mental health disorders, so this is quite different from my day job.
10: Not exactly a resume you would expect from someone learning to be genuinely funny, along with embracing the joy in failure and rediscovering their inner child. All of that part of the curriculum in this clown class, and Wood
8: is here for it. This is like the first time I've gone on stage and really been silly in front of other people and kind of let go more. It's kind of cool that I can do that or I can show other people that side of me. If
10: you have a boob Dr. Fancy is a professional clown with a mission in medicine. He's a character created by Skylar Sullivan, who is the education director at the Diversionary Theater. He also works as a therapeutic children's hospital clown. There is definitely something about connecting this deeply on a human level
6: that is spiritual for me. We'll work with a family and and the the parent pulls us aside and say, oh, they, they haven't smiled in two weeks. It has some really cool outcomes of breaking through some of, of that weight that sometimes people, you
10: know, experience in the healthcare setting. Yeehaw! Yeah! Yeehaw! So the heyday of clowns at a three-ring circus has evolved to a higher purpose, and it's happening in the controlled chaos of a classroom, where Brittany Wood, the county epidemiologist, is getting closer to owning her big red
8: nose. I feel like I've been making more jokes or I've been like a little bit more like open about I don't know, using my facial expressions more or just trying to be more engaged or more open with myself. And
9: start marching. One, two, three.
10: Danielle Levski will continue to use Ella and Baba Yana as inspiration for the next generation of class clowns.
8: Once, and then finish. <laughs>
10: M.G. Perez, KPBS News.
1: Books can make great holiday presents, even for the younger people on your list. And San Diego has a lot of local authors who write for kids and teens. San Diego author Tracy Badua's debut middle grade novel, Freddy versus the family curse, was published earlier this year. It follows Freddy Ruiz, a cursed seventh grader who is resigned to a life of bad luck until a rediscovered family heirloom gives him a little hope. KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans spoke with Tracy Badua about the book and here's their conversation.
8: Hi Tracy, welcome.
9: Hi, thank you for having me.
8: Tracy, this book follows 12 year old Freddie who has struggled his entire life with the uncanny ability to faceplant in front of classmates. If something could go wrong for Freddie, it usually would. Can we start by having you read from the very beginning? This is when we first meet Freddie and his luck.
9: Yeah, of course. So starting from the very beginning in chapter one, there's nothing more heart-stopping than the wheeze of an empty glue bottle the night before a big school project is due. Come on, come on, come on. I shake the bottle and squeeze again. Not one glob of grade-saving adhesive, not even a drop. I chuck the bottle toward my trash can. It seals clear over the heap of school uniforms on my bed past an ankle-high stack of old notebooks and worksheets. I miss. I thump my forehead down on the desk and sigh. My eyebrow lands in a wet smudge of green paint. The curse. Got to be the curse. Like straight black hair and those little chicken skin bumps on my upper arms, bad luck is in my genes.
8: Thank you. So the Ruizas are a Filipino-American family living in a multi-generational household. What made you want to write about these characters?
9: Well, you know, kind of the easy answer is it was writing what I was used to, writing what I know. I grew up in a household where I had my grandmothers stay with us for long periods of time. So it was nice to be able to kind of draw that into the story to show that, you know, it was my parents and it was me and my brother. And then, you know, my grandmother kind of hanging out with us and and, and watching us and keeping us out of trouble. So that's something that I wanted to reflect in this book. Because I knew not a lot of folks, at least when, you know, where I grew up, had this kind of multi-general aspect in their household. It was always like, I'm going to go visit grandmother, as opposed to, oh, our grandmother lives with us.
8: So luck is the centerpiece of the story. And with it, superstition and Filipino folklore. This anting anting is something that Freddie finds Can you tell us what he then learns about the Ruiz family curse and about his great-granduncle, Ramon?
9: Yeah, so this is, of course, not a spoiler because it says, you know, right on the back of the book that the amulet does have the ghost of his great-granduncle in it. He finds an unting-unting. So in the book, it's in the form of a gold coin that's on a leather string. So it's a little bit like a necklace. Um, But it really, you know, in kind of general Filipino practice, it could be almost anything. But in the story, he finds it and is like, yes, finally, I've got a good luck charm, I can get rid of this family curse. And his great grand uncle pops out and is like, Oh, sorry, that's not how this one works. It's actually going to make everything worse. So now you've got 13 days to, you know, banish this family curse forever, or you're going to get stuck in here with me. So that's kind of the rundown of what he has to deal with when he gets this unting-unting and it just ends up up upending his life and putting a time limit on it.
8: One of the things that he has to go and do next is find one of Ramon's old friends. And there's a bit of a history lesson in this book. Can you talk about the inclusion of Ramon's World War II backdrop and his participation in the Philippine Scouts and the Bataan Death March?
9: So the Bata'an Death March was um, like a 65-mile march by Filipino and American soldiers in World War II from Bata'an to trains that would take them to prison camps. And this was actually inspired by um, the fact that my grandfathers did serve in the military back in World War II, and one of them actually was a survivor of the Bata'an Death March. And it, it was one of those things that I didn't really maybe know of or realize the impact of until much later in life. So I wanted to make sure I included it, especially in a book for children. So, you know, if they wanted to look it up or maybe they won't get to, you know, later ages like I did and realize that this is the first time they've ever heard of such a a big event in our history.
8: I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about food. It's not an overt theme in the book, but it's still there as this way of really putting us in the room with this family. Was it important to you to portray traditional Filipino American food and other subtle details of their life as this thing of normalcy?
9: Absolutely. One of the things that he eats early on in the book is garlic fried rice for breakfast. And I do remember a conversation in my childhood where Um, A friend of mine was like, you guys eat rice for breakfast. I was like, I eat rice all the time. So little things like that, where I just wanted to kind of incorporate it in. So again, it's not the first time anyone sees it like out in the real world. There's, you know, folks who live in multi-generational households. There's folks that eat all sorts of cool stuff all times of day um, and then bring it for lunch and, you know, open up their Tupperware and garlic fried rice smell goes everywhere, but it's delicious. And, you know, there's little, little hints here and there in the book of the fact that he uses, you know, banana ketchup, which is something that you can find in a lot of Filipino and Filipino American households. And, um, you know, it's exciting to kind of throw those in. He's Filipino American. So there's plenty of mentions of like pizza and burritos and other things. But being Filipino American means that the Filipino cuisine is definitely just part of what you do.
8: So you set this book in San Diego and you're a local here. I'm wondering what this journey has been like for you, writing your first book in and about San Diego.
9: It was fantastic setting it in San Diego. And one of the things that I think is a little bit fun is that the book actually starts out in the middle of a storm. So, you know, fellow San Diegans would probably know that maybe that's not as uncommon here. We'd maybe like it to be so we could get a little bit more rain. But the fact that it starts out with rain in San Diego kind of sets up that feeling of, oh, there's something a little bit off here.
8: Tracy, thank you so much.
9: Thank you again for having me. This was a pleasure. That was KPBS
1: arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans speaking with San Diego author Tracy Badua author of the middle-grade novel, Freddy vs. the Family Curse.
3: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar,